0: Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basaud. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in Harley Street, London in private practice and delighted to be joined today by Professor Stephen Taylor, who's published a very interesting, some might say prescient or prophetic book recently before the current pandemic. Uh, that the world is in the grip of. And the title of this book is The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of an Infectious Disease. So Professor Stephen Taylor is a professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, Canada. He received his master's degree from the University of Melbourne and his PhD from the University of British Columbia. His research and clinical work has focused largely on anxiety disorders and related clinical conditions, including fears and phobias, health anxiety, post-traumatic stress, Disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. He's authored over 300 scientific publications and more than 20 books, which have been translated into many languages. His books include Understanding and Treating Panic. Um, disorder, Treating Health Anxiety, and Clinician's Guide to the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. He's also served as editor and associate editor of several academic journals, including Behavior Research and Therapy, Journal of Cognitive Psychotherapy, and the Journal of Obsessive Compulsive and Related Disorders. He maintains a clinical practice in Vancouver, British Columbia, specializing in mood and anxiety disorders. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thanks very much. The initial argument in the book is that um, doctors and health policy experts, people who are advising ministers at this present moment, frequently underestimate the importance of psychology and human behavior in pandemics. Can you say a bit about that?
1: Yes, um, that's for two reasons. One is human behavior and psychology are important in the containment versus spreading of infection. If you look at the things used to contain pandemics, they're all behavioral in nature. Um, with the, uh, even, even when it comes to vaccines, people have to agree to get vaccinated if a vaccine is available. They have to agree to wash their hands or cover their their coughs and, and practice cough etiquette. They have to agree to self isolate if if that's required. And if people don't agree to do those things for various reasons, then it's going to make it very difficult to uh, contain the spread of infection. Psychological factors are also important in. Um, uh, social disruption and and emotional disruption. Um, For example, um, during pandemics, there sometimes occurs what's called a hospital surge of the worried well. That is people who misinterpret their minor symptoms thinking they're infected with the pandemic virus um, rushing to the emergency room and overwhelming the healthcare system. So that's an important psychological factor. Uh, psychological factors are also important in things like the rise of xenophobia or, or racial discrimination, which unfortunately reliably uh, occurs with pandemics. And it's also related to other sorts of things like panic buying, which we've been seeing recently.
0: So what I found really interesting about your book was it kind of lifts the veil of things that are going on behind the scenes. In terms of media coverage, we're getting lots of media coverage where health experts are being interviewed. But really, your book lifts the lid on the, what's going on behind the scenes that the media probably isn't covering, the psychological impact on people, the fact that people will be extremely anxious and worried, and it has a negative impact on their mental state to quite an extraordinary level. And people may be going to their doctor and um overwhelming the healthcare system not because they're actually physically ill but because of psychiatric and psychological sequelae so there's a sense in which we don't really get the true picture of what's going on behind the scenes so any any thoughts about that
1: yes that's true um During a pandemic, a pandemic's a stressful event. You'll see an exacerbation in many psychiatric disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder or panic disorder. And you will get a, a general rise in health anxiety. And people will be presenting for what they see are physical problems. I'll be going to their family doctor for various symptoms, which are really driven by their health anxiety. Yes. Now
0: you start the book by looking at the history of pandemics and really um pandemics to many people seem like a very modern phenomena, but actually they go back to the dawn of civilization. And one of the points you make is that implicit within civilization are all the ingredients for pandemics, like the domestication of animals, therefore people being close to animals, uh trade, people they're traveling. Um, over distances and therefore spreading diseases in that way so could you say a little bit about the fact that actually it seems like we should resign ourselves to an implicit part of civilization that is naturally increased risk of pandemics
1: absolutely Um, whenever you get large groups of people cohabiting and then you increase their mobility you're 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 creating conditions in which uh, viruses will arise and spread um it's in a sense an arms race we we're we're up against we try and control the spread of infection and infections or viruses uh mutate um so yeah it's inevitable if we're going to live in groups um we're going to have to deal with our pandemics
0: and the other interesting point you make is that individual behavior can be really important so this notion of superspreaders um you reveal some statistics about the fact that actually sometimes superspreaders are responsible for more spreading of the disease than large numbers of 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 other people um and uh, you mentioned the famous case of typhoid mary and and typhoid mary um was spreading typhoid and had to be forcibly um isolated and incarcerated and promised um, or, or had to promise not to go back to being a cook. She was a cook and she was spreading typhoid by that way. But she 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 went back when she was released from incarceration to um, and, and refused to comply with the appeals authority. So she eventually had to be incarcerated again for an mm-hmm. extremely long period. So the, the, there's some individually dysfunctional people out there, which we may not be aware of, that um, contribute in a, in a dramatic way to the spread of these diseases
1: absolutely typhoid Mary was an interesting case she was a carrier of typhoid but she was asymptomatic Um, but what she was doing she was shedding virus and so working as a cook handling food um, she was uh, infecting people around her and she adamantly denied that she was sick and what she in her mind well she has no symptoms how could she be um, this is the 1920s how could she be spreading typhoid and she felt unfairly treated by the healthcare system because she was involuntarily put in a sanitarium on two occasions. Uh, but it was that firm conviction of hers that there was nothing wrong with her that led her uh, to work as a cook and to spread infection. Although at some level she must have suspected there was something wrong because she had to go from house to house. She'd take up a position as a cook in a household and then shortly afterwards, or weeks later, all the family members would fall sick with typhoid and she would have to move on. So in the back of her mind, she probably knew at some level that she was a, a carrier. But, yes, she infected more than 50 people with typhoid uh, during her life.
0: And that links to another really interesting thing in the book about the notion that really ordinary people who haven't been to medical school or or haven't got a scientific background. And, and Typhoid Murray seems to be an example of that often. I I think officials and doctors have difficulty seeing that they they don't really understand what a virus is and and all the basic concepts that that doctors are used to. And as a result, can end up being doing maladaptive things as as Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary couldn't understand how she could be a carrier when she herself was asymptomatic. Now, -hmm. this links to another really interesting concept in the book called vaccination hesitancy. Um, and, And you have a very interesting evolutionary psychological theory about why it is, ordinary people have difficulty um, accepting the principles behind vaccination and tend not to get vaccinated. um, And as a result, that contributes to pandemics. Could you say a bit about that?
1: Sure thing. I I just preface it by saying that uh, in 2019, the WHO listed their top 10 global health threats and vaccination hesitancy was one of those, and, and that is people's reluctance to get vaccinated. Uh, one way of, of there, are, there are lots of reasons for vaccination hesitancy. It can be um, misconceptions uh, about the safety of vaccines, and we, we've all heard about the debunked research about the link between vaccines and autism, for example. So that's one reason. But there's also an evolutionary reason that has to do with something called perceived vulnerability to disease. It's the idea that our biological immune system is not enough. It's not sufficient to keep us safe from from microbes, from bacteria or viruses, simply because we can't see them. And so we've developed a behavioural immune system. And that is a system, if you like, an alarm system in which we use cues, olfactory cues or visual cues as proxies for possible sources of infection. And that could be things that elicit disgust, for example, and, and the behavioural immune system, it it is prone to false alarms. So it will go off. People will start to feel anxious and avoid, say, people who have physical disabilities, who are not necessarily sick, or foreigners. And that fear of foreigners or strangers is thought to evolve because um, historically, uh, diseases arrived from outgroups, from foreign groups. For which the um, the local people had no natural immunity, and if we the, the best obvious example is the European explorers to the Americas, they brought all kinds of diseases to the Americas, including smallpox and influenza, for which the local people had no um, pre-existing immunity and uh, decimated the populations. So this behavioural immune system has evolved to help us avoid pathogens, even the ones we, we cannot see. And the thing with vaccination is it seems to trigger this behavioural immune system. and People differ in their their perceived vulnerability to disease. In other words, they differ in their sensitivity of their behavioural immune system. Vaccination involves taking a needle and sticking it in the person and injecting them with a pathogen. And for people who have this high perceived vulnerability to disease, it it, um, it triggers this behavioural immune system and, and seems to be one factor in causing them to avoid vaccination. But, but of course, there are lots of other factors, as I mentioned, um, uh, misconceptions about vaccine. Oh, and interestingly, uh, injection phobia, uh, blood injury injection phobia, that is also an important barrier to getting vaccinated. So in fact,
0: the psychological analysis suggests that built-in to our genetic design may be because vaccination only arrived in the last relatively near epoch but we, we are yeah. evolutionarily designed to survive in environments where, where vaccination is a very counterintuitive idea so you're, you're battling a deep part of many people's psychology with the concept of vaccination and, and i think many doctors don't realize that so a psychological understanding could help appreciate what's going on and and may help uh, with persuading people to be vaccinated. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And what, what I find fascinating is taking these seemingly um, nonsensical things like avoiding vaccines, even though vaccines are beneficial, or hoarding toilet paper, taking these seemingly nonsensical problems and, and asking myself, how can we understand what causes them? Uh, And that's a step towards dealing with the problem. And that's why it's important to understand the, the motivational roots of vaccination hesitancy, rather than dismissing patients as being stupid, asking ourselves, what has led to this and how can I find a way of dealing with addressing this problem? So another really interesting psychological concept invoked in the
0: book, we've discussed already behavioral immune, the behavioral immune system you discussed, and also this perceived vulnerability to disease psychological construct, which is very important. But another one that's very interesting is disgust sensitivity. I found that very interesting. I love the example in the book that people, one marker of disgust sensitivity is being repelled by um, chocolate fudge. Sculpted into the shape of dog feces that that was a marker of people um, who suffered from particular disgust sensitivity Could you say a bit about that?
1: Yeah, we can think of disgust by and large as an adaptive emotion This is linked to the behavioral immune system. The emotion of disgust motivates us to avoid pathogens So if we see rotting meat, we're going to feel disgust and we're going to avoid it. So that helps us avoid pathogens. So disgust works for us. If we see that someone has spat on a hand railing, we're going to feel disgust and we're not going to touch that hand railing. So by and large, disgust sensitivity is protective. But for people who have very high levels of disgust sensitivity, um, that, that can be, uh, it can interfere with their lives. Um, and that's linked to this perceived vulnerability to disease. People who have that high level perceived vulnerability typically also have very high levels of disgust sensitivity. And interestingly, um, clinically, there's evidence that contamination-related obsessive compulsive disorder is associated with heightened disgust sensitivity. So it's thought that um, in some cases, uh, washing or cleaning compulsions might be driven by this excessively high disgust sensitivity. So this is a psychological construct that may lie dormant or not not really very
0: apparent. But in a pandemic situation, uh, someone coughs in a room um, or coughs next to you, someone with high disgust sensitivity is going to be much more sensitive to that. It's going to drive human behavior a lot more. So a lot of these more latent psychological traits you discuss in the book are going to come more to the fore at times of a pandemic. Is, is that right?
1: Exactly. And knowing about disgust sensitivity and its link to perceived vulnerability disease can help us understand seemingly nonsensical behaviors such as people rushing out and hoarding toilet paper uh, as we've seen recently And, and people have been in the general public some people have been baffled as to what is causing this probably a lot of things going on but i think one thing happening here is disgust sensitivity people who are frightened of being infected um, they will have heightened disgust sensitivity, and they're going to be motivated to avoid perceived sources of disgust. And what better tool for avoiding disgust is toilet paper. And currently, I think panic buying of toilet paper, toilet paper has been seen as a conditioned safety signal or a symbol of safety, even though logically it, it's not going to stop you from getting infected. But it's linked to, uh, um, in people's minds, perhaps some deep primitive level, it helps them avoid sources of contamination and disgust.
0: Okay, so other psychological concepts invoked in the book include a very interesting one, intolerance of uncertainty, because in a pandemic, particularly at the moment we are at this moment in the pandemic, there's a huge amount of uncertainty as to what's going to happen next. How many people are infected? What exactly is the risk? What should we do? Should we avoid mass gatherings, etc., etc.? and. Um, Uh, there's a group of people who are much more intolerant of uncertainty than others and again This is a psychological construct that's going to come to the fore. Could you say a bit about that?
1: Yeah When I was writing the book I was I was looking at what are the typical stresses of pandemics and I'd lead uh, I started asking myself What are the psychological vulnerabilities factors that would make people particularly susceptible to those stresses? And one of the big stresses in pandemics is uncertainty and we've seen that with COVID-19. There's uncertainty about its its origins, its severity, how bad the pandemic will get. Uh, there's uncertainty even about its treatments. So that suggested that um, intolerance of uncertainty would be uh, an important factor in influence a per- influencing a person's anxiety about becoming infected during a pandemic. And indeed, if you go back and look at the research on previous outbreaks, it, it does show that People who have a great deal of difficulty um, tolerating uncertainties in their lives are especially likely to get distressed during a pandemic. Um, And clinically, you're you're most likely to see high levels of intolerance of uncertainty in generalized anxiety disorder, in what used to be called hypochondriasis, or now it's called health anxiety disorder and, and somatic symptom disorder, and in obsessive compulsive disorder.
0: So you also discuss two main psychological reactions to the stress of pandemics, and these are monitoring and blunting. Could you tell us a bit about those?
1: Mm-hmm. They're two general coping strategies that people use, and and clinicians encounter this all the time. Um, you'll you'll encounter patients who, if you deliver a diagnosis to them. Um, You say you have to tell someone that they have a carcinoma. Some patients will want a lot of information about that. They'll want to be told about the causes, the treatments, the complications, the risks, the benefits, and they are the sort of monitor people. They monitor health-related information. They want to know, they want lots of details. You will also encounter at the other end of the spectrum people who just don't want to know, oh, I've got a carcinoma, you just tell me what I need to do. They don't want to um, delve into the information. They'd sooner avoid uh, threatening health information. And they're the blunters. And we see that in in outbreaks too. Um, There are people who are monitors and they'll be seeking out all the information. They'll be reading the WHO press releases releases diligently. On the other hand, there are the blunters. They just don't want to know about it, they would sooner let the problem go away. Now, these coping styles have different sorts of um, consequences, and they each have their own risks and benefits. People who monitor, of course, are more likely to adhere to hygiene guidelines. They're more likely to realise I need to get my hands washed or cover my coughs. So that's a benefit of being a monitor. The downside is you're likely to be more anxious because you'll encounter a lot of threatening Uh, anxiety evoking information on the other hand blunters uh, tend not to experience as much anxiety but they're less likely to uh, learn about and implement methods for keeping themselves safe like they might be less likely to get vaccinated or um, less likely to uh, adhere to health authority guidelines so there are pros and cons to both of those uh, cognitive coping styles
0: now um. The important point about the fact there's a wide variety of personality types out there in the population, they're going to react differently to essentially the same um, information. And you devote a, a, a part of the book to the psychology of risk communication, because, of course, this is the endeavor that our governments are involved in at the moment. And we, we are we are hooked to the news Um, getting information from official sources. But obviously what's happened is, as you point out in the book, they're thought through quite quite carefully how to communicate the current risks. And one of the key dilemmas is whether to induce fear in the population or calm the population down. Could you say something about that?
1: Yeah. Risk communication is very important, but it uh, can be extraordinarily difficult under some circumstances. You don't want to underplay the severity of an outbreak because you want to people to get to be prepared on the other hand you don't want to exaggerate it because that would create undue anxiety in some people or other people will dismiss the outbreak as hyperbole so you have to find ways of generating a moderate amount of fear to motivate people to perform the sorts of hygiene behaviors and so forth that will keep themselves safe now you know this can backfire, too. If you generate a lot of fear and nothing bad happens, you get criticized. Um, the healthcare authorities get criticized. If they underplay it and it turns out to be more severe than they thought, they get criticized. So it's difficult. But one thing that makes risk communication very challenging is you need to consider the psychological makeup of the person and the person's circumstances. Um, if you have a person with a blunting coping style and you Uh, present them with um, fear-evoking information, they'll tend to ignore it. So you have to find ways of communicating that with them. And even simple messages like stock up with two weeks supply of groceries, even a simple message like that can backfire spectacularly if you don't understand the nature of, of the people you're communicating to. Recently, the recent spate of panic buying, in part probably arose because of this seemingly well-meaning message, stock up with two weeks' supply of groceries, toiletries, and prescription medicines. Now, ideally, we'd all have a two-week supply because uh, to help us um, cope with any unforeseen emergency. But most people don't because they, they focus on the immediacies in their busy lives. So this seemingly innocuous, sensible message um, was one part of a, a – A precipitant for panic buying because it caused flocks of people to go out to the stores all at once with a common goal to buy a two-week supply of groceries or to buy more groceries than they normally would and of course some people inevitably over purchase and there and that because of a perceived urgency and scarcity and and the whole thing can snowball into panic buying so risk communication extraordinarily important but you have to be really, really careful about how it was implemented.
0: Um, and um, another very interesting concept in the book, which I think actually uh, is an unspoken problem that we're beginning to see because this pandemic has been going on for a while now and the news has been saturated with it for a while, is this concept in the book you refer to as flu fatigue, which I thought was a very nice way of putting it, which is that if you bombard people with too much scary information over too long a period of time, they just get fed up or bored and then they start to switch off and i I wonder whether that's beginning to happen any any thoughts about that
1: yeah that's an interesting question every year with seasonal flu the the more you bombard people with the message i mean your your intent is to motivate them to go and get vaccinated but if they're incessantly bombarded with this sort of flu message they'll start to tune it out now i think that could happen with covid19 but not right now because It's still a very new disease to people. Most people have not had personal experience with COVID-19, yet they have with the flu. And so I think we're still in a stage where people, many people, not all, of course, are are experiencing anxiety, and we're not at the, the COVID fatigue stage yet. I think when the infection becomes more widespread in the general population And people are are, are familiar with it, and people get accustomed to the idea that, oh, yeah, it's a a serious disease, but most cases are uh, cases of mild symptoms. Now, when a vaccine becomes available, I worry about vaccine fatigue there. There will be media announcements encouraging people to get vaccinated. People will get bombarded with messages to do that, and you'll get analogous situation to flu fatigue where people start to tune out the message. Now um I'm, Another thing
0: that's interesting is this incessant message to wash our hands. Um, I know that people have been saying to me, but did not people wash their hands before? And again, there's some fascinating data in your book. Um, A study uh, showed that a quarter of commuters on on the trains and buses had fecal bacteria on their hands. And uh, another study found that 40% of people failed to wash their hands after toilet use. And so this this statistic, a quarter of commuters on, on trains and buses, had fecal bacteria on their hands was was really quite disturbing um could you say something about that
1: yeah that i think that gets to the heart of how of of differences in how people respond to health threats and we're seeing this in this current pandemic that most people respond with appropriate concern and and they cope well but there's always an extreme and it's hard to estimate the percentages uh Maybe ten percent, maybe more, are people who react with excessive anxiety. But then there are the people at the other end of the spectrum, uh, another group of people who who underrespond, who who dismiss the, um, the the threats of infection, who think the whole thing is exaggerated, and they're the people who tend not to wash their hands. I my, I don't. The research hasn't been conducted yet, but I suspect that they are the people who be most likely to have fecal bacteria on their hands because they they underestimate the importance of hand hygiene
0: now um, beyond the fact that if you get the disease in, in a pandemic, you will have physical symptoms. The book was also very interesting on the psychological impact. There are people who get the viral disease recover, but then there's a lot of people think the story is over for them. But but in one study, you mentioned 44% of people uh, develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So I found that quite surprising, the, the high percentage and the, the, the big impact psychologically on people, um, which may be a neglected issue um, after they've recovered from. Um, a, a viral disease um, and another psychological impact was the fact that with SARS um, you mentioned that um, a, an element of, of the, the disease was in fact developing a psychotic illness and this was secondary to the use of steroids, which was sometimes given in that situation but let's talk first of all about this PTSD point. could you say something about that
1: mm-hmm. some some researchers have described SARS as a mental health catastrophe because um, healthcare workers and treating doctors were focused mainly on treating the infection managing the infection because it was so dangerous and lethal for many people that the the psychological impact was relatively neglected. And what happened for a number of people is that yes, they recovered from their respiratory infection, but their psychological problems persisted and in some cases became chronic. Now, Part of what seemed to be going on was the stressful effects of quarantine. And there was a recent rapid review in the Lancet published uh, within the last couple of weeks uh, summarizing the research on quarantine and pointing out that quarantine is stressful for most people. Um, But for some people, it's very stressful, Um, particularly uh, if your, um, your contact with the outside world is limited, you have no control over your life. And you're experiencing severe respiratory th- uh, symptoms that you worry that you could die from. So the SARS people who develop PTSD would tended to be the quarantine survivors who've been through that stressful situation. Now I'm wondering what's going to happen to the the people from the cruise ships um, who developed COVID-19 who were quarantined, uh, particularly the people who were who were quarantined for two weeks or more in windowless cabins. And I sincerely hope that that they get psychiatric follow-up to assess them to make sure they haven't developed lingering psychological problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so there's this also, this psychotic illness that was associated with SARS. Could you
0: say something about that? And That's, you mentioned this this cytokine storm, you said as well, in the book.
1: Right. I'm not an immunologist, but I'll, so I'll do my best to describe what the cytokine storm is. It became important in addressing the question of if you looked at previous pandemics, the Spanish flu, for example, the people who were most vulnerable to dying from Spanish flu weren't the old, old middle-aged people or so forth. It was young, healthy people, children and young adults were most vulnerable to, uh, to the Spanish flu and most likely to perish. And the same thing happened in some other pandemics. And so it, it looks like the cytokine storm was a factor there, and that's uh, it 's like an exaggerated immune reaction to um in this case influenza infection that leads to um, uh, lung lung infection lung inflammation build up of fluids, and then people um, get uh, opportunistic infections from say bacteria and develop pneumonia and die and many people from The era of the Spanish flu died, not of the influenza virus, but uh, of secondary pneumonia. So that cytokine storm is important, but the steroid treatments used to to manage it can sometimes induce psychotic symptoms. And now these are short-lived, but we know from the research on post-traumatic stress disorder that psychotic experiences can be terrifying, and they can be traumatic um, events in themselves, so they can precipitate a post-traumatic stress disorder in vulnerable people now the book is full of data and I also think it's uh, it's it's
0: um, very easy to read and uh, another wonderful thing about it is the references at the back are very helpful because it's a very useful compendium of all the relevant resources um, but the other really interesting thing about the book besides the fact that it's full of data it's full of human stories and I thought this really um, made it extremely readable. Um, And um, one human story, which I want to conclude our our interview over, was this um, woman uh, um, who got nervous that banknotes might have viruses on them. And she microwaved um, the banknotes. And of course, the banknotes caught fire. Um, So one of the problems is that behind the scenes, regardless of whether people catch the virus or not, they're often Anxious, And because they're anxious, they may do irrational things because the anxiety plus um, the feeling they're in a high stake situation, plus they aren't particularly necessarily – haven't been to medical school. They're not brilliantly educated on, on what viruses are and, and what's realistic. So there's a kind of like hidden clinical iceberg, I think your book is partly about, of, of the impact on ordinary people. Um, and they're not possibly um, given um, – they're kind of neglected because the focus is just on stopping people getting ill as opposed to this this example of the banknote microwaving it and then catching fire there's a lot of other dangerous behavior that's going on behind the scenes i wondered if what your thoughts were about that
1: well in clinical practice when we're we're treating patients with anxiety disorders we always look at their coping behaviors because often the disorder is, is maintained or perpetuated by maladaptive coping behaviors so that's something we do in clinical practice but you can extrapolate that to the everyday world of how everyday people manage health threats and we're looking at the ways in which they cope and ask ourselves is the coping making the problem better or worse and the banknote problem is an obvious one it obviously was not helpful for her to microwave her banknotes and so Panic buying is another example of a coping behavior that's backfired because fear of scarcity Fear of running out of things produced real scarcity as people started or some people started hoarding or stockpiling foods So we need to look at people's coping behaviors and try and investigate whether they're making the problem better or worse as a way of managing um, people's behaviors and emotions in relation to um, outbreaks of pandemic
0: Now, that's very interesting. And I'm afraid I'm going to maybe take you off tangent here. But I think this is a really interesting problem at the heart of clinical psychology and psychiatry in terms of treating psychiatric problems, which is that you're absolutely put your finger on a very important point, which is it's the way people cope with stuff that often lands them in trouble. Um, uh, uh, you know, the maladaptive coping. Now, what's really interesting, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is is not just it lands them in trouble, but they keep doing it. The, 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 the psychological disorder is about you keep doing something maladaptive for a very long period of time and get yourself in deeper and deeper trouble. And that, you know, I frequently say to my patients, why did you keep doing that when it clearly wasn't working? Um, I, I wondered what your thoughts are about that, because I think that's one of the central enigmas at the heart of, of psychiatry and psychology.
1: Yeah. Uh, Fundamentally, part of it is people need to feel that they can do something to get mastery over their problem. Um, And if they feel like there's nothing that they can do, well, they'll they'll persist in doing what – at least they're doing something. Similarly with the the hoarding of of groceries and so forth, they feel like they need to do something to get control over the situation. And it's interesting if you look at – Um, what people are told to do for coping with COVID-19, they're told on the one hand, here's a big, new, scary problem. And and, and in the minds of many people, big, scary problems require special, big solutions. But people are being told, no, 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 you don't wear a face mask. You don't need to do that. All you need to do is wash your hands and cover your coughs. And in the minds of many people, that's a tiny behaviour for a big problem, doesn't seem commensurate. So um, people will be looking at ways of trying to cope, and that might involve panic buying of groceries. It might involve um, the desperately seeking out uh, folk remedies or quack cures. Um, there's um, one remedy uh, being proposed for COVID-19, which I do not recommend. It involves drinking bleach. And so some people are advocating the idea of, okay, we've got a big, scary um, problem we're going to use a, a really intense treatment which is bleach drinking i mean i, I totally don't recommend that at all but it is a, a very dramatic example of maladaptive coping and that point of course leads on to another very
0: interesting one and i'm aware that we, we we've got to close very shortly but um another part of your book is about conspiracy theories and the fact that conspiracy theories and rumors um, will be rampant uh, as a result of, for example, this pandemic and, and we're in other pandemics. Conspiracy theories about where the virus comes from, what governments are really up to, et cetera, et cetera. And at the one psychological theory about the heart of conspiracy theories is that that events that seem big events, like the assassination of a president, must require a big cause, so the lone gunman isn't a big enough cause to explain a big event like the assassination of a president. So people come up with a conspiracy theory um, with lots of other actors are involved and uh, behind the scenes to explain it. Um, so this this seems to be part of the same psychology. Any, any thoughts about that?
1: You're absolutely right. It's, it's the same. Um, if we go back to if you think of conspiracy theories as, as being kind of extreme rumors, rumors are attempts to make sense of of big events in one's life and uh, when there's uncertainty, rumors will spread to, to try and help people make sense of things. Uh, conspiracy theories are very extreme versions of that um, the conspiracy theories that we're seeing about COVID-19, they are just the recycled conspiracy theories that we saw about Zika virus, uh, about previous pandemics, that shadowy government organizations have uh, created a bioweapon that's got out of hand. Now the really interesting thing about conspiracy theories is, if you believe one of them, you tend to believe others. So if you tend to believe that COVID-19 was an escaped bioweapon, then you're also likely to believe that Mars faked the, uh, that NASA faked the moon landing, that the mafia killed JFK, and that 9/11 was an inside job. So this this conspiratorial mindset—it's it's, almost—it's a bit like a an encapsulated uh, delusional disorder. Um, And if you try and challenge conspiracy theories by trying to debunk their conspiracy theories, you get accused of being part of the conspiracy. So extraordinarily difficult to persuade Diodenor conspiracy theories that their ideas are incorrect.
0: And again, a part of the book is about the idea that we've got to tackle it earlier before the conspiracy theory develops, give people cognitive equipment that arms them in a better way. But we can't um, uh, talk forever, although I'd love to talk to you more about the wonderful book. We've got to think about closing there. Um, So, Professor Stephen Taylor, thank you very much. The title of the book again, The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Um, It's a book that can be read by doctors, medical students, psychologists, psychiatrists and the general public. Um, It's very readable and it's, um, to my mind, the the most comprehensive and readable um, catalogue of everything you need to know about the psychology of pandemics. Professor Steve Taylor, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much, Raj.